What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Belongs to me. Get out my world. It belongs to me. I just do the best I can. Hey there, everyone, and welcome back to Get Off My World, a podcast by three guys of middle age who talk about Doctor Who and all of its forms, aspects, and dominions. <laughs> I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. And we're here to tell you about Doctor Who. And because sometimes we start off... Surly. Surly. Yeah. Uh, we can. That's a potential that's always present in our in, in us. Uh, let's try to avoid that, at least this time. And let's, let's do something I want to call... You guys, I want to call this temporal grace. Wow, wow. did you just invent this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I nice. like it. It's lovely. It's got a ring to it, doesn't it? Yeah, a I ring. Like it. So let me give you an example. Sure. Uh, this is something that uh, I, I think to start off our podcast on a positive note, we want to say something that uh, makes us happy about the universe of Doctor Who or our experience with it, our relationship with it, that kind of thing. So as an example, uh, I don't know if you folks know this about me, but I like watching giant monster movies. Yeah. Uh, like our friend Matt Kesson, who has been on this yeah. podcast before. I've, I've recently been watching a lot of giant monster films. And uh, my wife and I, a few weeks ago, we watched the movie King Kong Escapes from the late 1960s. And I bring this up because the villain is named Doctor Who. Yes. <laughs> yes. He's a Japanese fellow. Mm -hmm. uh, it's clearly supposed to be a version of Doctor No, mm -hmm. because he has that kind of world-spanning, super evil organization kind of structure about him. And he, uh, of course, builds a giant mecha King Kong to try to take over the world. Uh, he even dresses, this is a coincidence, I'm sure, but uh, he dresses sort of like William Hartnell. <laughs> He's got a cape. He's got a round hat. There's a little bit of a John Pertwee atmosphere to him, too. Again, a coincidence. Uh, I bring it up only because it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for telling us that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a terrible movie, by the way. It's really bad. I mean, of all the giant monster movies I've seen recently, this is very much the worst. I mean, just don't watch this movie. Uh, have, you, have you gotten to Son of Godzilla yet? Uh, that is actually uh, the next one we're going to oh, watch. Oh, okay. Make sure yes. you have a, a plentiful supply of alcohol for that. Now, <laughs> we recently just watched the first four of the eight Gamera movies, mm -hmm. and we thought that those were okay. So that's that's sort of our threshold here. We thought that <laughs> okay. those were okay. King Kong Escapes, very, very bad. Uh, and so we'll see where Son of Godzilla falls in that. I'm guessing it won't be very high. It's when they decide to just overtly be a kid's movie. Yeah. Oh, it's it's dumb. <laughs> well, I will report back if I'm still here. I, like I said last time on the podcast, have been watching a lot of British television, and what pleases me about Doctor Who is continually seeing how it has just permeated the culture backwards and forwards through time, as is appropriate for Doctor Who. And I recently watched a little of this uh, British crime series that was 
kind of unmemorable called uh, Unforgotten. <laughs> uh, but what did you just say? I, I missed that. <laughs> and it is uh, Nicola Walker, who plays mm-hmm. the Eighth Doctor's current audio companion. Liv Tyler is one of the leads. And there is a reference at one point. They're trying to figure out the mystery, and there's a gentleman in a wheelchair who claims he was in a certain part of the building when the murder took place but it would involve him going up a flight of stairs mm-hmm. and Suspicious. so she she has this moment and says you know he's in a wheelchair how could he get up the stairs it's not like he's a Dalek and so it goes to show that we're into this new series Dalek where the joke is if he were a Dalek he could just fly up the stairs <laughs> Instead of the classic old school Doctor Who joke about that, you know, a Dalek couldn't get up. We the have stairs. lived long enough to see the joke reverse upon I itself. Know. We should be dead. Oh, I know. Oh my God. So that pleased me to no end and made me a little sad. How about you, Kelvin? Do you have anything in what I like to call temporal grace? Sort of, yes. Now, we're, we're all aware that the animated adaptation of the Macro Terror is coming out. Yes, oh, yes, we are. I'm counting down the days. I have like a Macro Terror advent calendar. I'm I know. so they, excited. They, they did, apparently, a minor change to the story. What? They're not crap. There are no macros, no, right? No, <laughs> yeah, there are no, no, there is no such thing as macro men. I mean, we, come on. But uh, <laughs> We've been over this. We've been over this. The scene where the the second doctor goes into the weird tidying up machine and comes out with mm-hmm. his shoes polished and his hair combed mm-hmm. and he's all horrified. Mm-hmm. Apparently, that's been truncated because, and I can't quite figure out how or why, but apparently it was too hard to animate. Sure, somebody holding a pair of shoes. Pretty tricky. <laughs> I don't know I, how and, and why. I don't know. I just saw Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse a few weeks ago. <laughs> I saw animation that I never believed possible. So. Yeah, well, I was say, Spider-Man I would... holding a pair of shoes? I <laughs> well, think not. I guess that's it. <laughs> Into the Spider-Verse, I think, had a budget. <laughs> so that might be a factor. And they also went on to say that for vaguely similar reasons, they, there will probably never be uh, an animated version of the Crusaders. Because of all the shoe holding? Uh, at, or the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve. What? Because, or Marco Polo. What? Because there are just too many characters in it. Yeah, I've heard that before. And too many different costumes. Too many different costumes. And in one of the missing bits of the Crusaders, there are characters who just show up and they're only in that missing episode. And they don't really have a reference for what they look like. If there are no visual references, yeah. and no one in the world knows what they look like... Don't say it, Pat. You could make it up. No, you can't. What kind of fan are you? <laughs> they could just do, like, a, a little... There are people still alive who saw that episode. We should hunt them down. <laughs> They're going to write angry letters probe their to minds. Doctor Who Monthly. Put them under hypnosis. Not the mind probe, Josh. <laughs> we'll find out what Without. those extras looked like. Yeah. You know, not to go down this rabbit hole too much, but, I mean, I've learned to, like, completely distrust anything that the BBC says about Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, you know, Russell T. Davies is like, we'll never bring the Master back because he's a ridiculous yeah. character. Next season, the Master is back. Oh, we'll never animate such and such because this is the thing. And now we got yeah. the faceless ones coming out mm-hmm. or whatever. They are masters of 
under-promising. Mm-hmm. They don't have the over-deliver yeah. part of it quite down yeah. yet. Yeah, but, but they under-promise. It's, it's, they are, it's, it's, yeah. the, it's the difference between British marketing and American marketing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does seem to be characteristic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now we are moving into something we like to call Special Topics Dalek. And this is just a random topic of conversation, Doctor Who related, that we like to chew over for a bit, and this time around, it's Josh's. So what do you got? Okay, well, I think we can all agree that classic Doctor Who is a low-budget program filled with shoddy special effects, inconsistent scripts, hammy acting, and some lackadaisical directing, and I cannot think of a single classic Doctor Who story that does not contain at least one of those things somewhere in it. So with that in mind, and in preparation for our discussion of Time Lash, what makes some shortcomings in a Doctor Who production forgivable and others an inexcusable travesty? Every time I watch an episode that is considered one of the worst episodes Mm -hmm. of all time, and I start picking on it, and I feel like the whole house of cards of Doctor Who as an entire show is going to come down, because I start feeling like, well, if I criticize it for that then i've got to take my favorite episode to task for that thing and so it's just yeah how do fans wrap their mind around this and are so uh, adamant about how terrible one thing is and how forgivable i i think a lot of it might just be performances and and script i'm with calvin on this one i'm a writing guy fundamentally that's what it is for me i can forgive a lot as long as the writing is solid and that's not always the case with Doctor Who either. Yeah, like, well, last episode, I think we all agreed that uh, a lot of aspects of the Brain of Morbius script-wise was a mess, but we still professed our love of it. Is it that some aspect has to buy our indulgence for I, another? It could change, but as long as there's something there to distract or offer in exchange, we'll give you this in exchange for a really poorly realized giant rat. This is the, yeah, the, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross bargaining stage of Doctor Who. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. She was the worst producer of Doctor Who ever. <laughs> that season where everybody, so everybody died. Uh, but yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, but yeah, no. <laughs> no, yeah, I think you're right about that. Okay, A, let's bracket off just nostalgia. Let's yep. just put that aside. Like I, the, that's a given for me yeah, that yeah, I it, like it, things. It plays a big factor. A big thing. Yeah, yeah, but trying to be like rational about yeah. it. If the script is working sufficiently, then other stuff I can forgive. On top of that, if the script starts to fall apart in certain ways, then other things can add on top of it to increase my enjoyment. Brain of Morbius is a good example. It's not one of my favorites, but because of the lush production of it and just the interesting way in which people look and the mm-hmm. sets are dressed and stuff, that is enough to keep my attention. <laughs> Plus you have this electric Tom Baker at the center mm-hmm. of things, which is always, especially in those early seasons, just mm-hmm. magnetic. It's hard to take your eyes off Tom and Baker. And that's different from nostalgia. Like People who love a doctor will forgive a lot of episodes because the performance of their doctor just charms them. And that's what attracted me to Doctor Who was the character of the Doctor. And that's what got me as a small kid to go, well, that is very unconvincing. But I've never seen a character like the Doctor before on American television, and so I was just glued to it. I've always had a hard time trying to articulate this, but... Okay, I I am somewhat known as a fan of 
bad movies mm-hmm. with significant flaws in, in the storytelling and the effects and things like that, which is not what I watch Doctor Who for. I, I'm always afraid to bring that up because I think you know people will get that confused. But sometimes in a really transcendent, quote, bad movie, unquote, the subpar effects and, and overdone performances actually wind up creating more of a sense of heightened reality or unreality than like actually well executed effects or, yep. or performances. I don't know if it's like a Brechtian distancing technique thing, <laughs> you know, like where you just, it's not, yeah, <laughs> you know, we're like, like you're, you are clearly watching a created thing and not right. something that is really happening. Right. And I wonder if that ha- has something to do with it. Just, it, it winds up being kind of a heightening thing. If done well. I can certainly see that as a way of viewing Doctor Who. It yeah. falls apart a little in that Doctor Who is made so piecemeal. And so mm-hmm. often in Doctor Who, people uh, in front of the camera, behind the camera, are all doing different things. Right. <laughs> and, and so rarely in Doctor Who do you get that consistent voice that you're describing. Mm-hmm. This, this heightened agreement from yeah. all participants to do it the same way. So there's a part of me that thinks Doctor Who sometimes is more like an accounting thing where you literally kind of add it up and at the end of the episode, because there's so many different parts, if you get more in the prose column by even one or two points, you like that episode. You're never going to get this perfect whole out of Doctor Who or a story. I can't think of one. It's pretty rare that I, I, I see anything where I literally can't come up with one thing I liked in it. And it could be like, oh, that guy in the background was wearing a cool suit. <laughs> you know, or, or the ever generous Calvin. You know, yeah. some, something on like literally that small. But uh, I mean, but this is why I like you so much, or one what of what the many reasons yeah. I like you is that for exactly that reason is because yeah. I identify this thing, or maybe these half a dozen things that mm-hmm. are extremely good about this that mm-hmm. I like, you know, either objectively or because they, they trigger something in you. Yeah, just some bizarre subjective yeah. reaction that I Or there are plenty of people yeah. who would be like, any one of these things are nonsense and it's enough to sink the entire mm-hmm. program mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. It's a show made by human beings. That Does this need to be said? It's made by human beings. It's yeah. not made by... Uh, but what I mean by that is that I think we can view it with a certain indulgence. You know, if mm-hmm. we see... Ibsen performed on stage and it's like you know I saw The Doll's House last year and it was much better than this one it's still The Doll's House and you can kind of see how human beings are interpreting different things maybe we're all too too accustomed to the idea of a perfect surface Mm -hmm. of something Avengers Endgame sort of perfect mechanical surface of everything being exactly correct but I sort of like the messiness I I do too but and, and I also it could be totally wrong, but I read in effort, I think, sometimes when I walk to Doctor Who. And there might be a poorly realized special effects, but you can see the care and the effort put into it. Mm-hmm. And I give points for that. Oh, yeah. Because I also know the backstory. I know the, uh-huh. the restrictions they were under in putting the show together. So that's maybe part of that nostalgia piece. But there are those episodes in Doctor Who where you really feel like, come on. I know, even in 1982... 
you just had to give a crap. (laughs) And this would have been better realized or slightly hidden. The difference between a poorly realized monster that is directed in a little bit of shadow than the glaring lights on the Merca in Warriors. It might be like a a generational thing of the media of of the bygone age uh, that, that you had to really put more of yourself into it rather than just sit there and passively let it wash over you. You know, you you have to kind of be putting an effort into watching it, and that creates a different kind of enjoyment experience than just, you know, I'm going to sit in one of these Mm -hmm. recliners in a multiplex and have a $200 million movie at full volume just absorbing every sense that I have. Well, I'm an old-time radio fan, and uh, one of the reasons I like the Big Finish audios, too, is it's just not that much of a step to listen to audios and supply all these visuals and and imagine Mm -hmm. everything going on, because that's how you watched Doctor Who. You you gave him a little bit of help. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's supposed to be a spaceship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not supposed to see that string. You have to choose what you love to a degree, right? And so, and getting back to something that you mentioned a little bit, earlier about the the stuff that's behind the creation of the program. I think we allow that to inform our aesthetic decisions about Doctor Who in a way that we wouldn't uh, under some other circumstances, for example. If the American Nazi Party was making a Doctor Who-style show right now, I I would not give it the same sort of indulgence that I give... (laughs) You know whether the scripts or the special effects were at the same level of mm-hmm. Doctor Who that it would be fundamentally incompatible with yeah. what my beliefs were. Doctor Who was not. It was a very fundamental part of my growing up, and so I give it that love. Mm-hmm. And I, as long as it doesn't betray that love too much, <laughs> not every time <laughs> anyway. Then uh, Doctor Who will change. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm always kind of. But Doctor Who does. That's the amazing yeah, thing. I'm always kind of astonished how small I, I I don't want to use the word trigger because that's too it's uh, got a depth yeah yeah it's got more of a depth than yeah. I mean but just some small detail of whatever they're watching the person just goes well I'm out and they just get up and shut it off and and don't watch the show anymore or read the book anymore and I'm always kind of amazed by that like you there's a scene where some characters, it's breakfast and he's eating bacon and eggs and you're like, well, I'm out. <laughs> you know, that character would never eat bacon and eggs or I'm a vegan, eating bacon and eggs is wrong or my dad was really awful to me at the breakfast table all the time so I have all these issues about people <laughs> eating breakfast. Is that the kind of people you hang out with when you're not with us? <laughs> because that sounds awful. There are days when it feels like that's true. <laughs> my know, advice? Not really, no. Ignore all humans. <laughs> no, I'm just always amazed at like the weird little details and something that are deal breakers for people. Sure, like, and I, I can just, get like, it. Yeah, and and on a really real level, there are triggers. There are people like well, it. Yeah. I've gone through a particular thing. And it's like I don't yeah. want to watch that. I don't want to watch that yeah, thing. I don't, because, I don't mean like. But we're not talking assault. Talk, being you're, yeah, about, we're not talking about Jodie Foster and the accused here. We're talking no. about yeah, or a no. private decision not to watch something. It's when they need to they need to rage make sure on knows. the internet and no yeah. one else can enjoy it. Although I just have to say quickly that I think we really missed a beat not calling this podcast Ignore All Humans. (laughs) 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 If we could go back in time. (laughs) And now round three, the randomizer. And the randomizer has chosen for us 
as a special punishment. <laughs> the Time Lash. Uh, it is the fifth story of season 22, written by a uh, young, inexperienced man named Glenn McCoy and directed by Pennant Roberts. And I think I'd like to start things off with my hot take <laughs> to let you know where I am at with Time Latch. And upon viewing this again, I, I was kind of of this opinion the last time I saw it. And with this viewing, I definitely am. I'm going to come out and call this the best of the worst of the 80s. I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Way to stick a position there, Josh. No, but I mean, it is arguably not good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. Why? Or maybe it is the worst of the worst of the '80s, which also makes it highly entertaining to watch. Because I can't think of any other Doctor Who where every production choice, good or bad, is the most extreme one possible in one direction or another. How are we going to realize the band drills? Puppets. There's no in between. <laughs> what should the androids look like? Blue with yellow hair. You yeah, know what, what historical are... figure should we do great disservice to? H.G. Wells. <laughs> it's just and the sets are really weirdly again. minimal, but not atrocious. No, it's the time lashes. The time lashes is pretty bad. I mean, it's only the title of the story. <laughs> So, and, and the band it's probably a place are, to save are, some money. Adorable. They're adorable. They're adorable. But my argument yeah. is, I don't think this episode is ever, ever boring. Oh, it, it's no. jaw dropping in every choice it makes. There are way better episodes of Doctor Who that aren't as entertaining to watch. No, I like. think I ultimately <laughs> hold to the philosophy that the worst thing you can say about any piece of media is that it is boring. Yeah. Oh, I think you could say worse things. <laughs> This is appalling. This is presenting a philosophy. I can't... Uh, You're right. This is not a Nazi story. No. There's a lot of things that get brought up in it that, you know, I keep thinking, like, this would have led to a better story, but they don't do anything with it. Like, the Bandrels. I kind of wanted to know what the relationship between the Bandrels and the, the humanoid aliens were a little more, and, and it's just there. Well, because there's so much packed into this. I mean, poorly realized, but a lot. This is quantity over quality, yeah. uh, for sure, with some exceptions. There are actually some really nice things in here. The Borat is a really nice piece of costuming, and it yeah. seemed like the actor was like, I am determined to balance the acting scales, and I am going to go as small and understated as Darrow is going huge and absurd must balance the Darrow <laughs> right because he plays this in a understated sinister yeah. form and it seems like in general everything with the Borad in his chamber the director got excited about and the, the lighting is good it's atmospheric in there and I actually really like the android design as bizarre as it is I, I, it feels yeah. real because I, it's I, so I bizarre wish, I wish the android did more things like I remember the android being a really central thing in the story and you watch it and he really doesn't do anything except talk like this a little bit once in a while and then blows up <laughs> Fre freaks out by hand mirror why did the Borad build the time lash in the first place what the hell was his goal here yeah, yeah. I'm gonna build like a time corridor to medieval earth excellent question that way lies madness <laughs> and there's literally no <laughs> <laughs> background for why this is there. My no prize is that it was just a side effect of his time aging device that he likes to use to kill people with. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll take that. I'll just put that out there. Okay. Well done. Okay. And how the bring him on. How, how does the doctor figure out that mirrors are going to screw up the android and stuff? How does he know there's a giant portrait of the third doctor behind the wall, and behind the portrait of the third doctor is a big mirror? Uh, he How does he know this? He doesn't know the third Doctor portrait is there. That's just 
fun for us as yeah, fans. Yeah, yeah. Earlier on, he and Perry comment on the fact that everything is so dull. So the set is intentionally dull and lacking in mirrors yes. or any shiny surfaces in which the Borad, who never leaves his little room, yeah. is still concerned that he might somehow leave and see his reflection. You know, sort of an <laughs> uber Doctor Doom where he like, I saw my image. Ah. There's a thematic that Josh has articulated much better than I than I could have about the Borad not wanting to see himself. Mm-hmm. like The anti-narcissus or something mm-hmm. like that, which could possibly have been a theme in a better realized story. Mm-hmm. How do I even talk about it? Should I talk about the things that I like about this story and build out from there? Or should we just chip away at some of the ridiculous things? Ooh, let's take care of Paul Darrow first. Uh, well, Cause, cause, Paul Darrow just died. Yes. So I, I, I have nothing Paul to say Darrow. bad about Paul Darrow. I mean, his performance is oh, it's terrible. inexplicable. Yeah, but I love it. What, what I heard is Paul Darrow intentionally acted Malin Tecker in this bizarre, over-the-top, crazy way as a way of getting back at Colin Baker because Colin Baker was in Blake 7, I guess, at one point, and he felt like he chewed too much scenery. I heard the, so was, <laughs> I heard the same story, and I actually had enough free time to yeah. go back and watch that episode, and I love you, Paul Darrow, but... Colin Baker is not anywhere <laughs> near, A, is over the top as Paul Darrow, or B, yeah. he's totally within the range of every bad guy performance in Blake 7. Yeah, yeah. There, there's nothing extraordinary about his over the top. Mm-hmm. Paul is just giving himself some moral cover for this <laughs> <Yeah>. episode. <laughs> but if it makes you feel better about Paul Darrow's performance uh, in the extras, uh, he's being interviewed. I don't know if you watched it, but it is so funny because he has this quality where he's sort of proud ashamed (laughs) and he's sort of laughing and has a little bit of a a twinkle in his eye about it and he recounts a story uh, where he was shooting scenes and John Nathan Turner came in and told him to stop doing whatever it was he was doing it's too much so he has the um the amazing story to tell that John Nathan Turner told him he was being too camp. Like, too, too much. <laughs> too much from John Nathan <laughs> Turner. That is amazing. Uh, but he just kept doing it. <laughs> of course. And, and, and the him. last line from Darrow in that behind-the-scenes featurette is him with this just awesome Darrow smile saying, when Tekken dies, just turn it off. It's no fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong, though. When Tekken dies, it's not that the story becomes uninteresting, but the entire thing is weirdly lopsided. It has a a strange momentum to it, because Tekken is killed by the Borad, and then the Doctor kills the... <laughs> even his skeleton is a ham. That, the drop of the <laughs> yes. skeleton is so funny. Oh. It lands on its butt and then falls like straight backwards with this comical clunk of its skull. <laughs> Can we do another take with the skeleton? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. So, uh, and then the Doctor kills... Sidebar, by the way, when I was writing up my notes for this, mm-hmm. uh, the autocorrect was always changing Borad to Brad. So I'm I'm just going to call him Brad for the remainder of this episode, if you don't mind. So when the doctor kills Brad after that, it's in a very cold-blooded, 
Colin Bakery sort of way too, because he captures the killing beam in the jewel Sweet and then executes it, him. Yeah, he just murders the dude. Like, <laughs> I was like, that's cold. Uh, so then uh, Brad's dead, and then there's a whole long sequence where the doctor has to talk uh, with the puppet guy and then intercept the the, the missile, missile with with the TARDIS itself. And within that, there's a long scene with Perry, which is actually quite well done on the page, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, but is executed in a very bad way. She's trying to be with him during this dangerous moment. Why won't you ever cooperate? Because I worry. It's my caring nature. You know, it's actually fairly well done, and it's sweet, and I think it's meant to be sweet, except that we don't, Nicola Bryan and Colin Baker and the director are just not doing it. But also in the extras, Eric Sayward said that the script came up short, and so they had to add those TARDIS scenes. So that's that awkward length of Tartar scenes with uh, both Perry and H.G. Wells and that Wells. really or, or was, kills was that the... that weird thing where they like have to strap themselves to the cops? Yeah, that might have been part of it. He was unclear which Tartar scenes, but every Tartar yeah. scene is too long in this. Yeah. Am I the only one who was kind of puzzled why they decided to use H.G. Wells as a sort of distaff Adric? <laughs> the, the whole thing about it is totally misjudged. You know, they hired an actor who looks a lot like Matthew mm-hmm. Waterhouse, mm-hmm. I think. I think there was a, it, a part of them that wanted to trick the audience to make sure they didn't guess it was H.G. Wells. Mm-hmm. But then you get to the end and go, I didn't guess it because that's not H.G. Wells. There's nothing like, like H.G. <laughs> Wells about him. So they succeeded yet failed. You know, there's an episode of Legends of Tomorrow where they go to the American West and they meet H.G. Wells's mom <laughs> with, like, a baby H.G. Wells there, which, uh, needless to say, that didn't that happen. No it, sense. It, 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 yeah. So... That is more ridiculous than this story, but <laughs> he doesn't look like him. He doesn't talk like him. He doesn't have the same accent. Yeah. Uh, why would he be doing a, a Ouija board sort of thing? Uh, and beyond the fact that he Take does, a deep yes, thank you. Uh, beyond the fact that the story does a biographical disservice to H.G. Wells, mm-hmm. stipulate that. Um, the fact that he's there is even more offensive to Perry's character. Because it means that there's nothing for her to do. Like, even by Doctor Who standards... Well, there's plenty of stuff for her to is, do, to be put into, like, leashes and yeah. dragged around and sexually menaced. Come on. Yeah, they take a lot it, of time to do it's that. Another, it's another story yeah. where Perry's there to be near-raped by some particularly disfigured, horrible villain. Yeah, and, and I'm so yeah. sick of that. Even the android takes time to comment on her attractiveness. Yes. Like, one of the side characters goes, well, that's a very attractive woman. And you're like... Yes, she is. <laughs> I'm like, you're uh, an android! Oh my god, I didn't even notice that. Uh, my my headcanon, though, for this is there's a side effect we didn't know about for the cure of Spectrox poisoning that results in this sort of extreme release of pheromones. And so <laughs> that explains how, like, Perry could be, like, cavorting around in a bikini in Planet of Fire and doesn't turn a single head. But as soon as she is cured from Spectrox poisoning, every vaguely man shaped creature wants to make her his bride. Apparently she is in a sensible outfit for one. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Look, Brian a, a pretty good a one. Weird, yeah. weird undertakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right, and I think it's a lazy rewrite of Caves of Androzani. Yeah. That's what it is. Because yeah. I mean, the Borid, his reasoning is so weird. Like, okay, he wants to breed a new race of himself. Okay, I understand mm-hmm. that, but uh, <laughs> who wouldn't? <laughs> It would be a lot better if there was just a million of me. Yeah, I mean, we can all relate, right, fellas? Yeah. But it's not the weird 
sexual fascination mm-hmm. that Cher's Jack had it has nothing to do with self-image in no. the way that Cher's Jack was ashamed of the fact that he yeah. was a disfigured person. This is like a weird monster who can't see mirrors. It's a weird thing to be introduced at the end. Like, yeah. Here, I will bargain off Perry's body, says yeah. the doctor, but let her look at you and see if she wants to accept you. Like, where did that come from? And it's really uncomfortable because she keeps objecting and he keeps saying, be quiet. Yeah. We're, ne- we're, yeah. we're men. We're negotiating over you. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, gross. It's a super uncomfortable scene uh, by yeah. standard. Brad! <laughs> there is possibly the strangest line of dialogue given to the doctor that I can think of. When the doctor says, speaking of a bride for Brad... <laughs> He says, don't tell me you've got a fat female Morlock with a slinky walk. Uh, <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, I, I plotted uh, that one out at 11.30 last night. My mental protective antivirus oh, I software. I, just I was like, I got to hear that brain. again. <laughs> Changing gear, gears, gears a little bit here. Um, I kind of like the weird beekeeper guard costumes. It was a very different take on mm-hmm. the menacing faceless guard yeah. thing mm-hmm. you know and i think it was and i think it's just like the, the the general awfulness of the story that i'm kind of focused i on. think they were beekeepers because even yeah. the, they have the weird like stick that the holds stick people guns. by the yeah. neck like something like they like pick up a beehive with i don't know i don't know anything about beekeeping i'm uh, gonna just be yeah. honest <laughs> don't don't have a bunch of apiaries around the house um, yeah, yeah well we're picking up on details that we like so I'll mm-hmm. say that I liked the weapon design I thought the weapon design was pretty cool the the android had a cool gun oh, yeah. that went over his arm there was yeah, a laser was really cannon cool. that was pretty cool I uh, liked the bandrel puppets I thought they uh, were the, charming the doctors de- afraid it's war yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for using this violent tone <laughs> my dander is up sir <laughs> but you know like, like there's some kind of like food trade between the two plants and like the humanoids just decide to be dicks for no reason. Ah, no more food. There's no there's even really a justification for why they're doing this. Yeah, yeah. It's not really pre World War One political complicated system stuff. Yeah. I don't really uh, I, yeah, but like, I don't even know some, what I'm saying somewhere here. Somewhere in I'm, there there's something interesting and that's, that's yes. your point from yeah. earlier is that if you, you yeah. tease something out of that maybe there's something there. And the doctor's weird time device that is puts I, in 10 seconds that's a really interesting that. scene. Yeah, yeah. And the clever idea of putting that burning android as a random non sequitur thing into the first episode before it happens mm-hmm. was really nice and clever yeah. and sort of foreshadows the things that are really popular in the new series now is really playing with mm-hmm. time. That alone would have been a great bit yeah. in any other there, uh, there, There's episode. so many little weird things in there like that that should have been in a better thing. <laughs> yeah, they, this is the first time they really do that sort of time travel play yeah. that I know of in the classic series. Mm-hmm. And also I think maybe one of the first times that the Doctor plays the I'm a Time Lord card mm-hmm. to do the moral authority like yeah. you have to listen to me now yeah. doesn't work but you know <laughs> but he'll, nice get, he'll get better at it yeah i i don't know if i would 100 percent agree with josh's statement that this is the best of the worst of the 80s twin dilemma worse time I, in the ronnie worse yes time flight worse yes it's boring that's back to Calvin's cardinal sin. Time yeah. flight just bores the hell out of me. But anyway, we'll uh, save it for a time flight. <laughs> but 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 that's uh, actually crying. <laughs> no no, I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's up. Uh, it's just time flight. Is all. <laughs> it's not a good story, but it is not as punch me in the face awful as I 
remembered it, and I don't know if that's just the um, calmness of age. You are not wrong, Cal. <laughs> no one without a pre-existing love of Doctor Who could even endure this story. But <laughs> it, it's hard going even for those of us who do. Yeah. But it's not the worst. It, it's not. That is the bold statement we are willing to make on this podcast. Thank you, Paul Darrow. <laughs> And now for round four, something we like to call silence in the library, in which we talk about printed Doctor Who material, and we're going to continue our discussion from last episode uh, as we continue to talk about the fifth Doctor comics from Doctor Who Monthly from the early 1980s. So two storylines this time, fellas. We're going to talk about... Stars Fell on Stockbridge and The Stockbridge Horror, both of which take place in the small village of Stockbridge, and uh, both of which are written by Steve Parkhouse, uh, who was the main Doctor Who writer on the comic strip at this time. Mm -hmm. So, Stars Fell on Stockbridge, uh, it's a short two episode yeah. story so it's a total of 16 pages so less than the length of a modern comic yeah what did we think about this uh, well let's talk about what it is what is it well it introduces a character that doctor who fans really like in the form of uh max maxwell uh, edison yeah majoring in medicine this is a very typical trope in science fiction today the fan or nerd as in-universe character. But this is from 1982, and this comic strip in particular is one I have a vivid memory of as a child and really liked it, because I had never seen that character. And it treats yeah. him with... There's some humor. There's some uh, jokes at his expense, but he is also a legit character who has some abilities that the Doctor can't quite fathom. He's a UFO spotter. Mm -hmm. uh, he claims to be a psychic. Or, well, no, he claims to have some technological device that can discover alien craft. Mm -hmm. But when the doctor opens the box, it's just a bunch of loose wires. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly Max has something going on other than technological mm -hmm. skill. It's not really remarked on. Uh, the doctor is like, hmm, okay. I acknowledge mm -hmm. that. And he's vaguely weirded out by it. Yeah. It's like, that's strange. And then he tries to get Max to explain a little bit more, like, where did you see this alien craft land? And Max gives him some gobbledygook about coordinate this, that, and the other thing. And the doctor thinks to himself, and I love this part, oh, that's totally meaningless. It must be some system of his own. But let's check it out anyway. Yeah. Because yeah, it, I'm it, the doctor. It's so great how the, the doctor just accepts people for what they are. I mean, you know, like he, well, sometimes he'll um, certainly not hesitate to call people stupid. Mm -hmm. But he will, like, you know, entertain the idea, okay, something is here. And, uh, I, you know, maybe we could 
kind of hand wave it away as like, oh, it's it's some Time Lord quasi-telepathic sense that he has or something. But but it's also fundamental to the mission of Doctor Who, I think. Mm-hmm. You talked last episode, Kelvin, about the equality of British comics from this era that we weren't quite able to articulate, mm-hmm. but uh, we can recognize it when we see it. And mm-hmm. this is part of that. There's a leftward tilt in British comics of this era that is sympathetic to people on the outside, like Max, who's a, I don't know, Asperger's guy or autistic, or at least he's certainly outside of the normal pub life of villagers who are constantly making fun of him and stuff. And this is most of the comic creators that I know of in British comics of this era, Alan Moore, Alan Grant... Um, all the other people who were working on 2000 AD, Steve Parkhouse here, had that kind of attitude. It's interesting. I'm not sure when this kind of faded away, but there was like a time period when being a nerd and a geek meant you firmly believed UFOs were real and Bigfoot was real and the Lactose monster was real and that kind of parapsychology cryptozoology thing. And yet it's a good decade in 1982 Yeah, earlier than when it becomes like a mainstream popular depiction of paranormal nerds. X-Files is going to popularize hugely. Doctor Who itself is going to do a little bit in a couple years in like the greatest show in the galaxy where we have Uh the weird fanboy of the psychic circus which is a sort of metatextual acknowledgement of a nerd and a fan Mm -hmm. of the series itself when i was a kid i didn't ever remember seeing or reading something quite like this at that time there may have been but in my personal timeline this was sort of like wow that's really cool and i love the ending when the doctor gives him this little bit of information to make him cool yeah to let listeners know there's a the spaceship that they find in orbit and it's crashing it's going to have some important plot points in the next comic strip uh, story that we talk about but the doctor gives maxwell this information that you're going to be able to see the debris from the ship crash and if he wants to impress people tell him exactly when and he tells people in the village and most of them don't believe him but one or two do and that's one of those great authenticating writing details where he doesn't decide to make it where the whole town realizes they were wrong about Maxwell. It's just this sweet moment where one or two people look out their window and suddenly have a little more respect for him. And I love that moment. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cool. It's like a weirdly much more grounded in in reality kind of emotional moment Mm -hmm. than uh, you would think of in a Doctor Who comic story. (laughs) It's nice, too, that it prefigures a certain type of Doctor Who story that you see in some of like the fan anthologies from later years. Like, what does it mean for this godlike creature to just brush up against your life for a moment, you know, for 16 pages? Like, I'm Maxwell Edison, all of a sudden I've been on this adventure or whatever, and then the Doctor goes away, and presumably maybe I never see him again. We'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... It has an effect on your life, like mm-hmm. a like a flapping of Zeus's wings as a swan yeah. or whatever. It's going to be a huge theme in the new series. And maybe it, uh, we can talk about the next one right now, too. Yeah. It leads right into it. So a moment to acknowledge that this is the end of Dave Gibbons' run oh. on Doctor Who Monthly. A moment of uh, A silence. moment of silence <laughs> for it. Yeah, he, uh, he'll 
go on to beautifully illustrated. The stars falling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The next story, the Stockbridge Horror, Steve Parkhouse actually pencils his own story for these first two parts. And then Mick Austin takes over and Mm. does the art. And Mick has a much more scratchy style than Steve Parkhouse does. And Parkhouse does, I think, a fine job Mm -hmm. uh, delineating that story, but he's he's no Dave Gibbons. It's hard to compare. not fair. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah. So the Stockbridge Horror starts with unusual, strange things. There's a fire, there's a dead tramp who has been incinerated, Mm -hmm. who, by the way, is found by PC Jim Marshall, the same cop who fought the Roman centurion back in the first part of the Tides of Time. So it's some little uh, Steve Parkhouse stand-in NPC who he likes to keep bringing back. Stockbridge character. A stock, 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 stock. Yeah. Uh, there's a coloring mistake. I got to say on page two of my edition, <laughs> yeah. uh, because what happens? What starts off the action is that they're blowing up a quarry, which is wonderful. <laughs> they're, they're, they're excavating a quarry, uh, and they find the imprint of the TARDIS in a limestone rock formation from the prehistoric era, which is a wonderful concept like what is that doing here and they rush off to tell people about it it's colored wrong it's colored blue instead of the color of the it neighboring looks like rock. they unearthed the tardis the, itself yeah, the tardis is it there, causes yeah. some confusion the doctor is confused about this whole business and he goes back and asks the tardis what have you been up to and the <laughs> consul says warp <laughs> that's one of my favorite moments <laughs> like who me I don't know, like, the, the TARDIS doesn't have voice circuitry, but it can kind of <laughs> control its central column thing to kind of semi-communicate. <laughs> really detailed control of tone. Yeah. Warp? So the, the Stockbridge Horror as a story, I remember this quite vividly mm-hmm, uh, as a good because this is uh, something I read over and over again. It doesn't... I want to say cohere in quite the way that the, the tides of time. No, does. it's got a lot of interesting ideas. A lot but of it, stuff going on. It moves from thing to thing a little faster and with less detail than the tides of time. Although I would say it's more traditional Doctor Who, pitting the Doctor against uh, Time Lords the military time lords in this case, and um, it even puts him on trial again at the end. It, uh, well, not again, before. Yeah, well, I was saying after yeah. uh, War Games. After the so War Games. Was, yeah. Like, technically, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the third, uh, the middle trial. <laughs> the middle trial. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's a super information-packed story, mm-hmm. and I think this is where... Maybe the structure of Doctor Who Monthly worked against the nature of the story because we could have used a little decompression. I mean, the fact that the Doctor took some bodiless elemental from a spaceship to Earth, which then hijacked the TARDIS and went back to the prehistoric era and released itself into the storm and became the idea of the devil or God (laughs) to humanity and then... The TARDIS came back, and then the Stockbridge horror somehow 
I don't know, it activated itself again back in the 80s and then started burning people alive. And then it took over the TARDIS and it was clinging to the side of the TARDIS. It's a really awesome image. That's a great (laughs) image that, again, the new series stole because Captain Jack does the same thing. Oh, yeah, he does. Utopia. He does. I forgot about that. You're right. these, These were powerful images in uh, fans of our age, which Russell T. Davies is as well. That's true. And then Shade from the Matrix forms himself without any instruction from Mm -hmm. uh, Rassilon or any any of the other Time Lords. He goes to help the Doctor, and now Shade's the hero. And we're going to go into the TARDIS software, and this is very 1980s, like blip, 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 we're playing a video game kind of thing. We're going to drop you. Oh, excuse me. Calvin, <laughs> doing a podcast. I wish someone had sworn just as that horn went off. That would have been beautiful. <laughs> but then Shade captures the horror like off screen, off panel, mm-hmm. and puts it into the Matrix. And the horror is like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm cool here. That's what I'm going to do. And then there are time torpedoes, and then the doctor's on trial, and all of these things. I was like, there's, there's a, a lot a crazy happening. crazy amount going on. Oh, here. yeah. It's just that uh, it it reminds me a little bit of... Um, time lash? No. Um, <laughs> you know, the European approach to comics, you know, those, like, Franco-Belgian kind of stuff that would show up in heavy metal. Yeah, like which Mo- would just Mobius. be Yeah, Dense with imagery and trying to pull a plot out of it was almost impossible. Mm-hmm. But it was just so visually stimulating that you just kind of didn't care. You know, and it might be that we just don't have as strong an artist as Dave Gibbons. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if Dave Gibbons did the artwork, if he might fill in some of the th- places that seem thin here. And we might be just as enthralled mm-hmm. by it as we were with Tides of Time or other Dave Gibbons artwork. And it's not to throw shade, no pun. <laughs> uh, Mick here, but uh, you know, it just isn't as evocative. Right. Now, I, I gather you two like read these when you were kids. Yes. Yeah, and the Marvel. Over and rates. over and over. Okay, and I over. read this for the first time like two or three years ago. Okay. So there was kind of a sighing about it quality for me of like, God, I wish I read this when I was not younger. You know, uh, like a character like Shade, if I had read that at the right age, I'm like, this is amazing. You know, and, you know, reading reading it, it, you know, well into middle age and it's just kind of like. God, this is trying way too hard to be cool. <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but sometimes you gotta really try lean, too hard to be try cool. try too hard to be cool and really <laughs> lean into the I don't wanna say tropes, but signifiers of what's happening at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well he's a ninja. And that's yeah. what was going on in the early eighties yeah. at the yeah. time. This Ninjas is a, were cool, but super powered Gallifreyan ninja. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Parkhouse appears to not know exactly what the TV show is going to do with the Fifth Doctor, so he's just basically been hanging out for what is clearly an embarrassing amount of time, because he's afraid to admit it when he's on trial, just playing cricket and having delicious English breakfasts in Stockbridge, (laughs) and just ignoring his uh, quote-unquote responsibilities, and I, I think that's 
really funny. You know, the Time Lords are completely right about that, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, it would be one thing if you were just hanging out and doing nothing, dude. But you actually <laughs> took this supernatural evil from outer space and yeah. dropped it on Earth and changed the entire course of human history. So maybe you should be reined yeah. in a little bit. But you've got to try these English breakfasts. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Withers really makes a great fry-up. I, I do really love a traditional English breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> I the puddings? I actually like black pudding. Me I too. actually like baked beans for breakfast and the big slabs of meat and just yum. <laughs> so, if, if final thoughts on the Stockbridge Horror Stars fell on Stockbridge. We're going to talk about more uh, Peter Davison comics next time, but this sort of wraps up the mm-hmm. Stockbridge part yeah. of things yes. in the comics. There is something just really quintessential about them. It's, and I read a lot of Doctor Who comic books, but two things stuck out Frobisher, mm-hmm. and the Sixth Doctor, and Stockbridge. As an adult, uh, having not read them in 20 years, that's what I remembered and took away. I can't really put into words what's so powerful about these couple Stockbridge stories, but it's just a sense of place. It's a comic book building up continuity, and I think that was pleasing as a young fan. It's kind of nice that the Doctor has some little place he goes to, like unit or... um, Rose in her mom's apartment or something. You know, just like something I'm going to come back to. And on that note, I do want to quickly mention the SAG3, the SAG3 team that shows up at Mm. the very, very end of Stockbridge Horror, who will have more to talk about next episode. They appear as if they were assassinated in the end of this one. It it seems like Shade, like, just straight up murders that dude. And this is another example of, uh, I think they could have spent more time developing the the final act of this story. But, yeah, he's not dead. They they appear again in Four Dimensional Vistas, which we're going to talk about next week. They really captured my imagination as a kid, and they just don't really appear after after this and the later story, but we'll talk about that more later. Vorp? <laughs> Vorp. <laughs> Vorp. And now round five. In which we return to our Big Finish audio trilogy, returning the Fifth Doctor to Stockbridge. And this is the second installment of that trilogy, Eternal Summer, written by Jonathan Morris. And if you are a fan of non-televised Doctor Who product, uh, Jonathan Morris (laughs) has done a lot. He wrote... Rather successfully, the past Doctor adventure for BBC Books Festival of Death. That was his first one, and people loved it because he captured the voice of that crazy comic era of Tom Baker and Lala Ward. Um, He also wrote the Eighth Doctor adventure Anacrophobia and The Tomorrow Windows, because I know Pat read a lot of those. I read Anacrophobia, yeah. yeah. 
too many Big Finish audios to list, but one of my favorites that he wrote was a Fifth Doctor story called The Waters of Amsterdam that fills you in on what happened to uh, Tegan in the uh. year between uh, <laughs> oh. Time Flight and Arc of Infinity. And so we were it's, all clamoring to yeah. know. But he he makes you go, why wasn't I clamoring to know? This is great. <laughs> so that's why I like it so much. Um, for me personally, this is the highlight of the trilogy uh, for yeah. me. I really enjoy this. Um, I would say for surface reasons, I just think he writes really nice dialogue. He uses humor sparingly, but to great effect. There's a great atmosphere in this. It's very Brad Barian in that it has this nostalgic, yeah. idyllic setting. And I think he really captures what I loved as a kid about Maxwell who returns from uh, Starsville and Stockbridge. Yay, Maxwell Edison. Played by Mark Williams, who would later play Rory's dad on the TV show, and for most nerds know him as Mr. Weasley in the Harry Potter films. Yeah. So what do you guys think? I liked it. I think I liked Castle of Fear more, but I basically liked this, you know, partly because, well, maybe in spite of, like I always wanted to do a... a on my own, a Doctor Who story where there's, like, some small town that's just kind of reliving the same day over and over again, which is kind of what this is. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, that idea's gone now. <laughs> um, so you're bitter. So I'm, I'm really bitter. <laughs> Doctor no. Who always robbing Kelvin. But I, what, one thing I found interesting about it was the Lord and Lady of the Manor thing. Yeah. Which, I gotta spoilerize the whole... Uh, show here. It's a an alternate future version of the fifth Doctor and Nyssa who have grown very old and have become evil and like feed on people's memories. Okay. Uh, Peter Davison is not someone I would ever cast as a villain. <sighs> His boyish face and, and blonde hair stuff, like he's just not a villain type. But uh, this gives him an opportunity to be a villain. It, it, it was kind of fun to hear him just going for it. This yeah. is like way, really extreme, crazy, I will eat all of you kind of villain, you know? Yeah, and, he, and they're supposed to be decrepit by now yeah. and ancient, so he really plays that in his voice. And you can tell they're having so much fun. And mm-hmm. it's a nice surprise in the script. Uh, I did feel like I've seen the story a lot. Yeah. Well, the Tides of Time had sort of a time wobbly thing going on. I saw it again on Legends of Tomorrow oh, yeah. not, not terribly long ago. Uh, the story itself references Groundhog Day, Buffy, mm-hmm. The X-Files, and Terry Pratchett, all of which uh, very obviously metafictionally feed into oh, this yeah. story mm-hmm. being created. So allowing that kind of self-indulgence, uh, I dug it. I liked the evil lord and lady of the manor. Mm-hmm. I particularly liked how they felt like the great vampires from State of Decay. Yeah, It seemed to me like, oh yeah, when Time Lords just get to a certain age, they turn into the great vampires. I, <sighs> I don't think that was intentional, or maybe no. it was just sort of in the background of the story, but I dug it. I thought that was cool. Like Kelvin, I didn't like it as much as as Castle of Fear, partly because it was so familiar to me, Mm -hmm. partly because I did get a little bit tied up in the 
the time loop thing, trying to figure out the logic of it. So if you guys will indulge me for a moment. Did you figure it out? No, I didn't, but I spent a lot of time trying to figure out where Max was from. What time Maxwell Edison is oh. actually from. Because it would make sense that he's from the early 80s, like has been established in the comic. Mm -hmm. Now, tracking back to Stars Fell on Stock Ridge, we don't actually know that that occurs in the 1980s. True. But it's plausible. We all assume that it takes place yeah. in that time. Uh, it, but if that's the case, then he could not have been telling the truth to Liz about being named after the Beatles song. Maxwell Silver Hammer, because that would make him at most like 13 years old. That's true, yeah. So if he's from the 80s, then maybe that was just a joke mm -hmm. he was telling to it. Mm -hmm. The coincidence of their names mm -hmm. made it like, my mom named me after the Beatles song. Oh, that, that would be impossible. However, if he is from the 2000s, then it does actually work. He's returned to the same period that he left at the end of the story, However, the townsperson he talks to doesn't know who he is, and neither does that alternate version of Liz, which suggests that he is not from the 2000s. Yeah. And also, the town itself. So if it disappears in 1944 and 1945, yeah. which is established because the cover story is that it's destroyed by a V-2 rocket, which mm -hmm. would have to be one of those two years, then why does the time loop sometimes incorporate elements from the future? The Doctor sees fashions and cars from the 1970s yeah. and other it, times. It, it, but, it covers 60 years, I think they established. But, uh, yeah. There's no reason for but, it. Yeah. And why does it do that? I don't Where's Max in there? And, yeah. so, and then it just all like collapsed on me, yeah. and I couldn't follow the logic any further. So anyway, that's pure Pat Harrigan there, you no, guys. That's, you are one hundred percent right on that. I tried to follow it this time. This is the second time I heard it, and I couldn't. But what it reminded me of, and I think I've used this comparison before, is like a Raymond Chandler novel, where <laughs> if you actually scratch the surface and try to figure out the mystery plot of it. It kind of falls apart, but if you just sit back and then do it, like, this is plotted this way to create engaging scenes. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to forgive yeah. it yeah. for that reason. Well, yeah, But I you're mean, right. I kind of took it that Maxwell Edison was, like, about Mark Williams' age, which I'm guessing is about 60. Which would make sense in terms of his first appearance. Yeah, yeah. He was around yeah, like he would 40 have been, or... He would have been, like, 30 something. 20 or something. Yeah. And again, like I say, I'll allow it. <laughs> you know, I'm, not, I'm not nitpicking well, just you know, uh, to be you know, a dick about well, well, it. Well, no, okay, yeah, Lizzie no. had... Was in PIG. <laughs> I love that acronym. <laughs> um, Psychic <laughs> Investigation Group. Right. You know, because Stockbridge vanished. Yes. But now Stockbridge didn't vanish, so she didn't experience that timeline. There is no pig. To me, it was obvious that's why Lizzie didn't recognize Maxwell's, because she just didn't experience that. But whole. in that timeline, if she had been living in the same village as a Maxwell, she would know who he was. There's some suggestion that he is Maxwell because of his powers is somehow outside the sphere of... The time bubble. He seems to recognize it more than others. But He's yeah. supposed to die too in a motorcycle accident. Which is that the motorcycle accident from Stars Fell on Stockbridge where he hits the fence 
and flies over? I don't know. Or a different one. Or we just know that he's a bad motorcycle driver. bad driver. driver. He should really have his license revoked. (laughs) Should have died 30 years ago. I thought it was a nice nod to that. I I think it's a nod, yeah. The child in me loved the condensed audio adaptation of The Stars Fell in Stockbridge, where we got (laughs) a little flashback reenactment of lines and bits and pieces from that. And it was a a joy to hear. And I also, because of what I found so enjoyable about uh, The Stars Fell in Stockbridge, of this sort of um, sweet attitude toward Maxwell, the little tiny condensed romance between him and Lizzie was... Very appealing. I was kind of disappointed he didn't ultimately find permanent love. But I think that I, would have been too nice of a bow. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I'm with Josh on this. I, I think he felt the potential of it mm-hmm. and understood that with the rewriting of time that that wasn't mm-hmm. going to be a thing, but now he felt more capable as a human. Yeah, I think it... Maybe I'm projecting. No, 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 I think because he decided, I am a psychic investigator. He was no longer embarrassed of it. It mm-hmm. helped him realize his potential. So yeah. I think it was a nicer touch than having it mm. just be a happily ever after. The Doctor Who narratives are always about therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so the demon, that's the Stockbridge horror, right? What did they call it, it was in the story? It was either Stockbridge Horror or it was a nod to that, an elemental yeah. power of some so kind. A couple elemental it. powers yeah. hanging out. Oh, under Viridius? The, yeah, Viridius, thank you. That's the name I couldn't remember. The, and it's the, mentioned in the Castle of Fear because he sees the, the writing in it, the it, tunnel. It, it's like a weird manifestation of the green man of pagan stories. In this story it is. Yeah. Yeah, but it has to be the Stockbridge horror itself, right? I took it as just a nod to that sort of style of storytelling that Steve Parkhouse did that is outside of the realm of Doctor Who where there are, like, elemental beings that aren't really given a science fiction explanation. I choose to think it's literally the same thing. Well, your choice is wrong, Pat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Stoke Uh, the controversy here. I, I wasn't so much bothered by the, you know, trying to follow all the time loop stuff and whatever, but um, I was kind of puzzled by the fact that the denizens of Stockbridge found this, like, eternal time bubble reliving their whole lives thing, including really super tragic stuff like kids burning to death in fires they were viewing it as heaven like we have what immortality and i'm like this horrifies i, I me. am with you on this go the emotional notes of this story are very strange yeah is that how you simply adapt to this circumstance after you've lived through this for an indeterminate amount of time it's mm-hmm. like you have to understand that this is heaven because they're allowing you to have more time with your dead child before the child inevitably burns to death they, they also erase their memories periodically because the Lord and Lady of the yeah. Manor do that so you see here's what felt real to me about it is that I think it's a very human thing this idea of this horrible thing happened and I get this chance to sort of erase it where you can die and you get to come back and you get to relive the happiest parts of your life 
and then the horror comes again. But oh, we can make it better by getting to relive the joys. And then finally that wears off. And you realize it's just a cycle of horror and joy. And then you get your mind erased. So I thought it was built into the story a in a way that I hadn't really heard a, that. There's a pretty before. good novel to be written about this. Where yeah. like if we live our lives over and over again up to a point... And then we remember that we're doing it. Mm -hmm. So we try to grasp on to the the joy that we have, knowing that there's inevitable horror at the end of it. But then we keep doing that for so long that it develops post-traumatic stress syndrome and anybody who could possibly do it until we get to a breaking point where we simply cannot do it anymore and and the entire thing has to to be entirely erased. And then we do it again. Like, that's that's a deep, weird concept. That's a strange psychological concept yeah. that is, is one of the things that Doctor Who can do by yeah. doing these strange little stories. It doesn't explore it in any particular no. detail. But, uh, but, but they sort of... Cosmic. You touched on it, Calvin. Yeah. It's like, what does this even mean? Was it Milton who's, like, I'm going to paraphrase this horribly, like, the human mind can make of heaven a hell and of hell a heaven. Or yeah, whatever. I think it's Milton, yeah. Yeah, but I guess that's what's going on here, but it just, to me as a listener, I'm like, this is clearly hell. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. Is, there's... Well, that is their final realization, right? And yeah. so that's what I think is valid about yeah. it, is I buy the idea that they can fool themselves for a while. But that's where every character ends up. They end up at the Lord and Lady of the Manor, realizing it's hell. Begging to be erased. Mm -hmm. But I totally buy that for a while, a human being would fool themselves for a couple cycles. But maybe I'm more into fooling myself. I've fooled myself for so many years. Another personal confession. (laughs) (laughs) I can't do it anymore. Well, come on up to the house, Coleman. (laughs) I'm so hungry. (laughs) Well, that's it for this episode of Get Off My World. Thanks for listening. Next time, we will finish up our survey of Fifth Doctor, Doctor Who monthly stories from the 1980s, as well as the third part of the Big Finish Stockbridge Audio Adventures, Plague of the Daleks. And, let's not forget... The Randomizer. What did we get? Well, let me tell you, we're going to watch episode 23, William Hartnell's The Ark. Oh, wow. From 1966. But in the meantime, I hope you all remember that I am Pat. And I am Kelvin. And I'm Josh. And we're always perpetually saying, (laughs) Get off my world. And now for round four, something we like to call silence in the library. What? (laughs) (laughs) Please. (laughs) It's totally worth it. (laughs) Made Tony so mad. (laughs) Did I?